Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gin and Topics with Jen and Kristen. Wow, I almost forgot the name of our podcast. Like, I just I almost just blanked on it. It's been so long since we've done this. <laughs> we had to have extensive retraining on how we were going to record this thing. Hi, everybody. And we're being really presumptuous that there's anybody left because we have abandoned y'all for a year and a half since our last episode. But I can't um, believe it's been that long, but then t- time has no meaning this year. I so. mean, I don't, I mean, has anything happened of significance in the last so. year and a half? No. no. We'll, just, I'll, we'll basically just jump right back in. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should, as though this year has never happened, which is what I plan on doing. It's um, just the, the blank year. Yeah. So, yes. So, our last episode was about Fleabag, which holds up, my friends. Oh, that was well, a, the episode that... and the show. Like, I've, re-wa- I've rewatched Fleabag uh, oh, yeah, me a too. couple of times because it's such a bright spot for me. Um, and Phoebe Waller Bridge is just absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah. I mean, Jen, what have you been up to? Really, just give us like the Reader's Digest version of what you've been up to for the last 18 months. Well, I feel like we, you and I both, we should be very proud of ourselves. It's not like we just, you know, did start podcasts and did nothing. Um, I had a book accepted and published. It came out in March Yay! of this year, right at the beginning of pandemic. Woohoo! Woo-hoo! Yeah, so... and uh, Kristen, what have you been doing with your time? I've been studying for the LSAT so that I can apply uh, for law schools. So, and I've, I've completed my LSAT. I've started the application process. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm applying to law schools presently. So I'm sure so I'm going to have even more busy. time for a podcast <laughs> once I get into law school. <laughs> It'll turn into, we can start like doing podcasting on like legal dramas or something silly. No, oh like, Lord. I don't want to bore no, everyone won't. to tears with that, but you this... won't want to do that. No, but we've been, so we've been productively busy and I feel like there just hasn't been anything that has grabbed our attention as worth discussing. Although at the beginning of pandemic, I will say we did have a really fun joint watch of the new Emma. We did. Yeah. That came out with Anya Taylor-Joy. And we what did we do? I think we all, you and I and another mutual friend, we all like pulled it up on our TVs and put our phones on and watched it together. <laughs> so we did. That was, that was one we could have, we could have talked about. And speaking so. of Anya Taylor-Joy, I did just start recently Queen's Gambit, which we might <gasps> want to do an, uh, an episode uh, on. Because... Uh, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> if you, okay. Okay. So maybe we will have something because Queen's Gambit, is wonderful. I loved it. So I've heard we can, nothing but good things about it. Nothing. I so I loved it. I really yeah. did. It was very engrossing. So, um, so yeah. So now we are coming to you to discuss the end of 2020's greatest Christmas gift to us all, to all the ladies of the town. <laughs> <laughs> Really, I didn't I didn't honestly know how much I needed Bridgerton <laughs> until it actually like was coming into my eyeballs. And 
then I spent a full day a couple of days ago. <laughs> like I literally just shut the world out. I said, children, fend for yourselves. Mama needs to watch something. <laughs> I think I turned it on Christmas night. And man, guys, Christmas is lovely. But like as a mom of young children, it is just a shit ton of work. It is just like cooking and cleaning up and toy maintenance. And it's just so I, Christmas night, everyone has gone to bed. And I'm like, Netflix, bless you. You have dropped this in my lap. And I just like laid in my bed and watched like first two episodes. It was the, it was so wonderful. It was the most addictive thing I've put into my eyeballs in a long time. Like it was yeah. heavily, heavily addictive. So friends. And very escapist, which is wonderful and much needed, almost like a public service these days to provide escapist entertainment. <laughs> And who knew? Who knew that it was going to be that it was going to be that? Like, I remember seeing a trailer for it and my interest was a little bit piqued because we're obviously huge Jane Austen fans. We love mm -hmm. Regency era dramas. And that's exactly what this was kind of billed as initially when you watched the trailer. And I was like, oh, that looks kind of fun and interesting. And yeah, then, it looked a little bit like the one that was on Prime last year. Is it um... Sanditon? Not Sanditon, but the um, the the one that was shoot, it has just fled my brain. Done by the same guy who did Downton Abbey. Dang it! Uh, it'll come to us. Belgravia. Ah, oh, Belgravia. Bel yeah. Belgravia. That's yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this Bridgerton, I was like, oh, it's like Belgravia. No, no, my friends. No. How would you how would you describe this show to someone, Kristen? Okay, in the same way that. The show Firefly was a Western. That's how Richerton is a Regency era drama. It is pure okay. fantasy. It is like, it's like, it feels familiar, but not in the ways that you're expecting. So it is, I describe it as kind of a Regency era fantasy world. Um, like how we wish Regency era was and how we always knew it could be so at least that's how I describe it when I'm talking about it I don't disagree I have been describing it as Regency alternate universe fanfic yes perfect <laughs> description because it's just like fanfic does it's taking a particular like setting and location and set of characters but it is very much a modern sensibility like the characters do not talk to one another the way characters of historical era do so it's very much like an alternate universe an au set in a regency era with like hypothetically modern characters that you've like plunked like plunk gossip girl back in regency era and that's what we have that's, so yes, that's how I've heard it described as well. It's like it's like Jane Austen and Gossip Girl had a beautiful, really wonderfully represented baby. Um, yes. And that's what this is. And it's yeah. also got a really healthy, but not unhealthy, I don't feel, um, layer of sex that just doesn't really, because <laughs> we have to touch on that oh, yeah. <laughs> we will talk about the sexy part 
sexy bits. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's so got... just like fanfic has a lot of like wish fulfillment. <laughs> it's it's very much along those lines. It's it's like Shonda Rhimes went through like all of the most popular AO3 tags. Oh, and yeah. basically just plucked her favorites and like threw them all like just threw them at the wall and just like that's what stuck I said to Kristen when we started watching it I was like if Shonda Rhimes is getting paid to make this kind of stuff we need to line up and get our money yo that's <laughs> what I'm saying we are we both can, fan fiction writers we are both fanfic writers and we can write this shit <laughs> like and have and it's so satisfying because it just meets you like with all these common plot devices but um i think what makes bridgerton work is that the characters are also very fully realized um that it doesn't feel thin the way that stuff that's really contrived and tropey can feel kind of thin at least it doesn't to me i'm no, sure that's up for debate I think I think that's true. Although I will say that like as the episodes unfolded, it did feel it felt honestly like it was the tropiest trope fest that ever troped. Like <laughs> that it ever just, troped. There was we so were to- <laughs> much tropage. It was We were we were like keeping a checklist basically like open the AO3 tags hurt comfort. Oh, episode 7, you know, just like it was And it was like it was even to the point where like it was but then I've just been conditioned from the X-Files to just um, like really sit up and take notice when they use each other's first names for the first time. And I was just like, <gasps> they said each other's first names. It's so sexy. Well, and we're conditioned from all the Jane Austen adaptations. I'm thinking particularly of the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice with the really infamous moment when Darcy like grips his hand repeatedly after he's helped her into a carriage um the so the, mo- the moment the moment in Bridgerton where I think um the duke's you know hand goes up onto her onto the back of her neck is like you just about are gonna keel over yeah because that's what Regent Sierra stuff does to you it, it takes you from but so I feel like we're getting ahead of ourselves but we yes, are the 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 moment where his hand brushes this like it's not the small of her back it's a bit higher than that it's like (laughs) the middle of her back during the dance is like it's one of those moments those regency era moments where you're just like like it's so hot and heavy and they're like it literally (laughs) like his fingertips brushed her back it's not that sex and then you know seven episodes later it's what happens is what is what happens, but we'll we'll get to that. But all of it just to say, if you're if you've listened to our podcast before, you know that we really dig the subtle slow burn, and there are like really enjoyable elements of that. So, so Bridgerton, Bridgerton, not not a Jane Austen adjacent, not a historical adaptation. It is based on a series of romance novels that sort of follow this sprawling family. Um, I have not read them. I haven't either. Julia Quinn. So Julia Quinn is the author. Yeah, I of- definitely know her name because when I worked in a used bookshop and there was just like the constant rotating 
in and out of romance novels, like her name is a big name yes. in romance writing, which I will honestly say I'm like really thrilled to see that kind of writing get given a big budget treatment. It feels just to me, you know, it's like, well, they're out, so Outlander. I feel like Diana yeah, Gabaldon out, has kind of, yeah, Gabaldon's yes. And Outlander, same concept, like Outlander's a very well-produced show. Um, extremely sexy and like very much about female desire, you know? And I feel like Bridgerton is another one of these shows that's going to go ahead and be like, we're going to give the mamas what they want on Christmas. <laughs> Here you go. And I'm just so thrilled because there's how many fucking zillion Marvel comics movies. There's room in the entertainment landscape for a little Julia Quinn romance novel. <laughs> I agree with um, you. I agree. Big with you. budget adaptation. There's my there's my soapbox for now. So, no, I think I'll get up on the soapbox with you. Um, the you know the superhero genre has really gotten a facelift um, in the last five ten years, and I feel like you know so so comic books are sexy now, and that's great, yeah. and that's that's wonderful, especially coming from. a you know, nerd dumb like we do. I like them in general. I have nothing against them. So romance novels probably deserve the same treatment. Absolutely. That's my point. Like give some, yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had by ad- by adapting some of this stuff. So I was, Absolutely. I was glad to see so, it. Yeah. Yep. So maybe I'll add a Julia Quinn novel or two, just because I kind of want to find out what's going to happen in season two. Um, <laughs> I'm super keen. I guess from what I understand, and this is kind of spoilers, obviously we're going to spoil the shit out of season one. But Yeah, we're always going to say that with any of our discussions of shows on here. We're going to say if you haven't watched it, go watch it and then come back. This is an eight hour miniseries. So eight hours of it's going to be some of the best um, stuff you've seen in a long time. But the the second season, from what I understand, is going to be Antony's romance, so or Antony's love life. That's going to take a turn because, obviously, where he was left off um, at the end of the series, um, not not a great place. So he's mm-hmm. he's going to be the focus of season two, from what I understand. Um, so, but again, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we need to talk about season one. Um, so, as I was watching Bridgerton, from the moment that it came onto my screen, it's basically like taking a bunch of, like, powdered sugar and just, like, <laughs> rubbing it in my eyeballs. Like, it is so, it is so confectionery and airy and beautiful, and it's just, it's a feast for your eyeballs. I couldn't get over all the, there were so many scenes with this absolutely beautiful foliage and flowering trees i mean this is not what england looks like at least only maybe (laughs) a couple times a year but like it was just over the top gorgeous that scene i believe it's episode two where they're at the party in the at night with the fireworks i mean good lord it's just beautiful it was gorgeous aesthetically delicious very Um, aesthetically pleasing um and it wasn't just the scenery it was also in the costuming which i feel was like it was the costuming was very deliberate and i've 
I've read a couple of articles now that said that there was a ridiculous amount of costumes, even for a production this this long and this big. Mm-hmm. It was just ridiculous. Like the the amount of costume changes that the main characters went through was just ludicrous. Um, but there were some. I feel there were some very specific costuming choices that they did in terms of they they chose specific color schemes for the families. So the yeah. Featheringtons were always like these kind of very loud, acidic, um, yes, like yellows, yellows and oranges, and, oranges, mm-hmm. greens, like especially Lady Featherington. She like the cut of her dresses was just absurd and not even remotely historically accurate. I kept noticing that that like yeah, she had very like um hourglass cut dresses. Polly Walker, I love Polly Walker. She like, was brilliant in the show. She was yeah. absolutely brilliant. Um and the way that they made her out to be kind of I I'm saying it in quotes, but the villain kind of of the two of the ladies um or three I should say because there was um, Violet, and then there was Lady Featherington, and then there's Lady uh, Danbury. Um, mm-hmm. They were the three main matriarchs, mm-hmm. if you will. Other so, than Queen Charlotte. Other than yes. Queen Charlotte, yes. But um, Lady Featherington was made out to be, you know, the not great mama of the three of them. Um, but then they built her backstory um up quite a bit towards the end of the first season Mm -hmm. and they really um fleshed her out a lot more so that she seemed way more three-dimensional than than like a lot of the other um Jane Austen I I hesitate to use the word villains but a lot of the other women have been Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so um her her Costuming was brilliant, in my opinion, because it did set her out from the very beginning of the show as someone who was seeking attention in Mm -hmm. the loudest possible way. And I thought that was very brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that probably worked on me in a subtle way. I hadn't stopped to really think about it, but you're totally right about that. Because her and the girls, um, Prudence and Penelope and uh, Philippa, I think it was mm-hmm. Philippa was the mm-hmm. last one. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. The all three girls just and and they're if you've ever noticed, they're footmen as well. All of the the household was just dressed in this incredibly like electric loud clothing. So yeah. they were really trying hard to call attention to themselves. And then when Marina showed up. She was Marina Thompson, I believe. Thompson. Was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the the country cousin, you know, which is another like a trope, obviously, that they totally there. We we've got to start listing these tropes. <laughs> but um when Marina showed up, she was in softer muted um colors and textiles, and it was just such a such a contrast. Mm-hmm. Um and then even with the Bridgertons who their their clothing style was always um in very pale um whites um ecrus like but it was it was studded usually especially with it was like it was like if eileen fisher had set up a shop 
they she <laughs> would outfit the Bridgertons. Yes. <laughs> And yeah. it was. And side note, I love Violet Bridgerton. Oh, she's I just wonderful. love her. Like she's, I feel like she is an she is afforded like a full life in a way that I don't see a lot of matriarch type characters being allowed in a lot of fiction. Just that, like her love for her husband, and her just like absolute warmth that has animated her entire house with how many children are there? Are there like eight, eight, nine. Yeah. You know, I just feel like you don't, you know, a, a lot of the matriarch figures we get shown in some of these, are you pouring gin? No, she's pouring. Yes. She's, yes, I she's am. pouring gin, everyone. Um, you just <laughs> do not, um, I don't know. Like, I just felt like she was a full, a full human who had not like diminished her humanness by aging. And I really loved that because that's not something I typically experience in fiction. And I think I told you that like when we had our discussion about one of the adaptations of Sense and Sensibility and I had the horrific moment of realizing that I was the same age as the mother. Oh, I think it was Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> it, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and like, I'm not in the ingenue, by any stretch anymore and so now i'm watching movies with this just different watching shows with this different moment of like you know of a middle-aged perspective and recognizing how much like depth and desire and warmth still like animates me and people my age you know it's just i just loved violet i just really really loved her I think that the show did a really wonderful job of doing that with all of the characters in terms of like really fleshing them out, making them seem human and relatable um, to us here in present day, like where we are meeting us where we're at. And I think that that's kind of um, part of the brilliance of the writer's adaptation because they did the same thing with, with Lady Featherington, I feel. Um, they made her eventually feel relatable, just like they did with Violet right out, right off out of the gate. Um, she really did have this wonderful warmth and just relatableness as a, a woman who has lost a husband that she dearly loved and also has been working hard to raise kids who aren't assholes like I feel like that was her mm -hmm. main goal it, mm -hmm. even though she was trying to um you know make her kids you know equal to their station in life she was also trying to make sure that they had a heart still and you saw that in her interactions with Antony um right out of the gate the fact that she wasn't afraid to she didn't kowtow to her to her oldest son, despite the fact mm -hmm. that he would have been considered the, uh, the the head of the household at that point. Um, and she certainly didn't hesitate to put him in his place. Um, and it was it was really wonderful and heartwarming. And even this is another thing that I think the show deserves to get credit for is that they placed a huge emphasis on the younger children as well. So even though we didn't see much of them towards the end of the first season, mm -hmm. in the beginning of the show, it was 
like they built in a lot of dialogue and a lot of interplay between the older siblings and the younger siblings Mm -hmm. to show just exactly how much this family really had become. It was, it was so interconnected and it was abnormal for the time. So I do think that, I do think that probably one of the reasons I like the Violet character and then the way that she interacts with the children is I suspect that is the way that this show is like fanfic or like not a historical representation, because these are, these are really contemporary ways of parenting and being that would not have necessarily been how parenting was done back in that day, or at least in no way that we typically see depicted. So I think that, you know, I like Violet Bridgerton because she's like, like she's, she could be a contemporary mother of a large family, you know, um, that is probably not <laughs> really historically accurate, but um, I I think that again is a, where where I see people like critiquing the show for various things. I'm like, no, 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 no. Understand your genre, you know. <laughs> your genre of the romance novel is you're taking people and they typically have modern sensibility, but they're back in other eras, so we get all the the different mores and economic situations, you know, in order to provide conflict and structure to the conflicts that we wouldn't have access to in present day so right and obviously the the juxtaposition of um the duke of hastings being an only child and yes um, daphne being one of eight um or nine did we decide it was eight or nine i think it's eight um because they're on a hyacinth they're on an they're an h yeah eight Eight. Okay. So they have eight children. Um, and then the fact that he makes mention of it at his first dinner um, with her and her family. And just the fact that uh, he, he calls it out to Violet that oh, it's, it's unusual that your children are also, you know, dining at the table with us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're they, the youngest ones are just having a food fight back and forth and, and the oldest children are, are bickering and it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful, homey, modern feeling. It table. honestly, I gotta be truthful. Like it made me want to have like a lot more kids, which that's not happening, but <laughs> there was just something there. I mean, it's really intoxicating. And I, I do think it's really important because obviously that establishes a huge component of Daphne's, motivation and Daphne's like through line of her plot in the in the first season is just about like I'm raised in this large loving family and I want that for myself you know and then I'm with this you know I end up with this person whose story is so different and doesn't want that that I do appreciate that like they spend so much time making you very much fall in love with the family so that you understand what Daphne is looking for what she's seeking Right. And the love between the siblings, all of the siblings, like all of the sibling interactions that you see, um, even from Eloise at the very beginning, just screaming up the staircase for Daphne to get her butt down there um, for her, you know, um, her audience with the queen. Yeah, her debut with the queen. Um, It was all of the sibling interactions that they have. It just it does. It makes you grateful for the the siblings that you do have it makes you pine for 
for you know the chaos that is a big family mm-hmm. um so i thought that was wonderful and there were some really really great interactions between eloise and benedict um that i thought oh yeah when the they're smoking set. yes yeah on the swing yeah i loved those because yep. they're they're the two of them are kind of the family outcasts in a way that um i thought that they they did a really good job of making clear in terms of Benedict just not wanting anything to do with um, being the responsible first. Mm -hmm. Well, they're each the second of the genders. Right. She's the second daughter and he's the second son. So they both kind of have to let the first ones do their thing um, so they can be unconventional. So, yeah. And they both revel in their unconventionality. And I think that they celebrate that in each other. And I thought that was really beautiful, the fact that they highlighted those relationships. And um, the same with with Colin, with the third brother. Um, he's just kind of a, I, I want to say he's a ne'er-do-well, but he's not. He's just a flirt. Like, he just. Oh, he's not a ne'er-do-well. No, no, no. That's a soft boy right there. <laughs> he's, he's so, so soft. and But he wants, <laughs> he wants to be the ne'er-do-well. Like, he wants to be out and, like just flirting with everybody and like traveling everywhere. And- yeah. But he's harmless. Like, I mean, he, he, he thought he was in love so fast. That's just precious. He did. And the fact that, you know, deep in your heart that he absolutely, if, if Marina had told him the truth, he absolutely would have done right by her in terms of, he's like, I would have, I would have married you anyway. Like I would have, if you just told me the truth, we're spoiling the shit out of, the plot and we're not going in order at all but who cares who cares again this is our discussion this is this is what you put up with if you choose to listen to us you know our jankishans i loved colin i i fell in love with colin really hard like right along with penelope um as he fell in love with marina or thought he fell in love with marina um to the point where when Penelope showed up um, to cry to Eloise, like right before, right before she ended up breaking the story about Marina. Which is the side note, the moment when I started to suspect her. Um, I, I honestly, I cried right along with Penelope because I felt so desperately for her. Like I literally cried tears as I was watching that scene because I, I felt so terribly for Penn and I, I wanted, I wanted nothing but good things for her. She is, Nicola Coughlin does such a wonderful job of making her feel relatable and wonderful. Um, She's a top favorite character for sure for me. Penn and Eloise and um, and their friendship, their friendship is beautiful. And Benedict, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I love Benedict's storyline. I I'm really excited actually to see where Benedict's storyline goes because um, I I loved those scenes in God what was the artist's name um, Grant Granville Granville Grantville um, yeah I loved those scenes where he was invited to these like kind of soirees these like kind of beatnik which soirees. felt about a they felt about a hundred years too early didn't they. They felt very Belle Epoque France. They did not feel Regency England. 
Wonderful. Like, I mean, and I don't know. I mean, my obviously knowledge of history is not like professional, but they, it was they were fun scenes, but they felt very bohemian. They did. And the and the whole concept of like bohemianism. I mean, this is like barely, barely romanticism at this point. I know. So we are not deep into the, you know, the 19th century by this point. So it. I mean, they were fun. Don't get me wrong. Like, I like those scenes a lot, but. I was like, oh, this is just too early. I don't think this is, but what do I know? It's okay. It was, it was one of those, it was one of those times in the series where you felt like, no, this, this feels weird. This feels off. (laughs) Um, In the same way that when you were confronted with Queen Charlotte um, and her like massive, like Marie Antoinette wigs, it just felt like, on a second it's like a century too late like or at least a couple decades <laughs> where, too late where like, are we fashion wise on yeah on what is going too. on here um you know what it reminded me of is did you ever see the vanity fair adaptation with reese witherspoon i did and there's that moment where they do they do like a dance thing and she like does this suggestive dance and they're all dressed very scantily do you remember that scene? Yeah, yes, I, I do. felt similarly about this scene of like, okay, maybe maybe these things happen, but like every depiction that I've ever seen of these eras does not seem like this kind of stuff would be accepted in any kind of upper crust society at all, especially not in the time. In like, this time, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so but so it, we're nitpicking on historical accuracy, which we said we weren't going to do because it's fanfic. So. <laughs> well we I, I don't think we're nitpicking i think we're just calling attention to the fact that like oh this feels like it feels it, a little weird it, it feels a little jarring us slightly. yeah it's jarring yeah. so this might be a good place to talk about the other like significantly jarring aspect of the casting so let's do it yeah and we're gonna yeah so okay so that was one of the things that i i don't think i was fully anticipating um, but it was welcome and wonderful. I loved it. Yes. Um, the representation aspect of this uh, show was absolutely phenomenal. And it felt to me fairly seamless in terms of, of, in terms of the representation. So obviously Regency era England is typically depicted as very very white very white especially the upper upper crust um you might see depictions in paintings or other films or whatever of the occasional servant class probably enslaved person but you're not generally seeing that in the upper crust society notable exception did you see the film bell no which is about um which is about a woman her name is dido Dido Elizabeth Lindsay. So she was um, a woman of African descent who was uh, the daughter of somebody and had basically taken her place in English, in English gentry in society. It's a great film. You should watch it. I should. Um, Yeah. So it's not unheard of, but the, the sort of like amount of black and I even noticed Indian and other persons of color that are in the cast um, is it is not as far as we could possibly know historically 
accurate. Slavery has been made illegal in England several decades before this moment, but the, what is it? The slave trade hasn't been illegal, but slavery itself has not been. So we're there in this, like this moment in time is very much a transition. So the, this, the show is really, I think what I've been reading about it, because obviously this is getting pushed back from people who want this to be like a Regency era film. Um, and, and the pushback I think is that, and, and this is where I feel like there's something that I got to confront in myself that there can be like a real, there's like a way in which enjoying some of these historical periods or like enjoying these, these films in which there is like, it's pretty much all rich white people, you know, living their lives, which we know on the backs of enslavement, that's all off screen. All of these economic systems hide where all this money is coming from. Um, and so I think sometimes that the desire to have those these films and these stories just look look a certain way is a desire to continue to keep those realities hidden. And so a show like this that says, hey, everybody, people of African descent, black people, people from the West Indies, people from India, they are as much a part of that society as they are now. We just, we've just whitewashed them out of history, out of paintings, out of, you know, so many things. And so um, I think it's, I'm not going to call it an overcorrection to, to have the numbers sort of presented in the show like this, but it feels it like, it just, it feels really good in a, in a way that's off-putting because it makes you start to think, why have I not seen more of this until now? And then I have to think about why I've not seen more of this until now. And it's because we have a preference for viewing history in a certain way that keeps all the yucky, the yucky stuff hidden. So yeah, that's what I've been, th that's what I've been thinking about with it. And it, it was, I was trying hard to kind of articulate, especially I tried to articulate to my husband, why the show felt super relevant um even yeah. though it's kind of a it could be viewed as kind of a trashy you know <laughs> it's, it's kind of a trashy jane austen uh, it is trashy but we don't but yeah but but i was trying to articulate to him why it felt like really good and wonderful to see all of these different people represented on my screen even in the secondary characters and in the you know yeah. the, the backup you know characters um from all on all sides of the spectrum so from servants on yeah. on up to society mm -hmm. to the queen's ladies in waiting um and to the queen herself and there is a throwaway line that lady danbury um says to the duke at one point about mm -hmm. midway through the series or no maybe it's even it's maybe it's even the second episode where we find out the duke's like backstory with his father which is just absolutely fucking tragic um that queen charlotte and i didn't know this but the actual queen charlotte mm -hmm. in real life yeah. was probably biracial and she was probably able to pass, quote unquote, to a mm -hmm. certain extent, um, given the lightness of her skin. 
Um, and so, and she did actually marry and into, into the royal family. And she, she was Portuguese, I believe, and uh, Caribbean yeah, I, to a certain extent. I yeah, I looked this up too, because that's again, like, I never knew this. But yes, she comes from this like line of Portuguese that was like Afro-Portuguese and was, yeah, likely biracial. And there are many paintings of her where you can see the African features in her face. And it made me long for somebody with time to do a write up of sort of this reality of British monarchy and juxtapose it with what dear Meghan Markle has been through oh my gosh in the last couple of years because hello like it's still very present the kind of ways that Meghan was treat a Meghan she's not my friend she's <laughs> the, her, <laughs> well they, she's not a royal highness anymore so anyways it just it made me want somebody to do a write-up about Queen Charlotte and George III and you know and what we sort of see with you know the intermarrying into the British you know, royal line of people of color. Anyway, <laughs> anyways. Yes. And taking so. that and taking that and, and Lady Danbury says, um, you know, in, in a, you know, kind of a throwaway kind of a line or kind of an explanation for why their version of Regency era Britain is different mm -hmm. than the actual historical version is because, you know, she, she opened the door, Queen Charlotte opened mm -hmm. the door for people of color to become um, more than just a novelty and to become part of a society, part of society and to be integrated mm -hmm. into society. Mm -hmm. And um, so that to me was really wonderful. And that is what represented the AU aspect of history to me. Yes. And yes. I, I longed for that and I long for that still in a way that I can't really articulate because I wish that that's how it would have been like I I want history to have been that way I I want people of color like Lady Danbury and um and the Duke of Hastings Simon Bassett to have been landed and to have mm -hmm. all of those opportunities that they could have had had those doors have been open for them it made me think very much of Hamilton. Yes. And just how, if you take the liberty to retell history in a certain way so that you can see yourself in it, it has a power of sort of reclaiming the past, um, decolonizing it in a way. Um, I'm not expressing this very well, but it, it made me think very much of Hamilton and that that was an audacious and specific choice to say, I am going to tell a story and I'm going to tell it with, you know, people of color, with people who have not typically been included in this storytelling and let the real power of that um, experience um, settle into people. And I feel like this is this is a lighter version of that. Um, like more lightweight, I mean, in terms of seriousness, but it's just another way of like, I'm going to go ahead and tell a story that opens up a space that's been a very white space, incredibly wealthy white space of Regency historical drama. And I'm going to go ahead and open up that space um, and make cracks in the narrative of what we've all been told. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I thought I thought it was brilliant, and I thought it was really well done, and I thought it was really seamlessly done. Like it didn't feel forced. It didn't feel off-putting. It felt like, God, yeah, I really wish this is how it would have been. Like I really, honestly wish this is how it would have been. I feel like because the story itself was only marginally about about that. Um, you know, there is the conversation that you mentioned that Dan Barry and Hastings have um, about, you know, how they've made their way into society. But the bulk of the narrative is not about that struggle. It's more like the show itself is challenging you to have a problem with it. It's going to be like, this is not a show that's about racial relations. Totally. Just accept these people are here. They've always been here. And we're going to include them in the storytelling, you know? So I don't know. It was, it you was know, really, it was really cool. It was just really cool. I feel like Schitt's Creek did the same thing with the relationship between, and we haven't talked about Schitt's Creek either, but Schitt's Creek did the same thing with the way that they, with Dan Levy did the same thing with the way that he crafted the universe of, of Schitt's Creek um, in terms of, um, acceptance of um homosexual uh, relationships mm -hmm. and um his relationship with um patrick in that show it was never portrayed as problematic so much as it was just like this is just a fact of life and the mm -hmm. you know the rest of the cast of the show just kind of accepted it as a fact of life and yeah. And it, it so it in a way I feel like Bridgerton does the same thing. It it paints the world as as we as we want it to be um and you know gi gives us the ability and the opportunity to kind of accept it as we as we wish it would have been. And I I I found it really hard to articulate, especially to my husband. It's like, no, you don't understand. Like the, the, the hero quote unquote of this, the, you know, the male protagonist, um, in Simon, the Duke of Hastings, he, like he's, he's perfect. He's wonderful. Like, but in reality, in, in the real world, he never would have existed. And that, it pains me and it makes me sad at the same time it makes me joyful and exuberant that i get to watch him melt the shit of my television every time he's on tv like can we we haven't even talked about how hot he is in real life like can we just give can we give ourselves we can, a moment we can talk about the so now we will talk about the trashy element not trashy we will talk about the way that this show services female services, desire. like literally services female <laughs> desire. Like, wow. Like, wow. <laughs> Let's talk about it. One of the things that I couldn't, I just was like, this is remarkable is that in their first, I mean, we're skipping ahead. So there's a lot of sex starting in episode six after they got like, and it's like pretty athletic sex too okay like, but their first time can we talk about their first time let's talk about we can talk time. about it but, but we'll talk about it but do you notice you actually usually in these situations you get a lot of like full frontal lady the camera 
like fondles the man's pectoral <laughs> muscles for like a solid two minutes. And like you don't actually get any TNA from Daphne. And I was like, oh, this is a show for women. This is, I mean, not that we don't like, you know, to look at the there's ladies There's literally, but... there's no female nipple anywhere in the show, which is I remarkable. think there's like one tiny bit, but like. It is remarkable. We, get, we do get a lot of men's butts, like from like the opening. We get that. I mean, I'm not saying this is like total male objectification here, but it's a clear indication that this is a show about female desire. It absolutely is. Which is just wonderful. I've, so. I'm not going to say no to it. Not at this point in 2020. <laughs> like, it's been wonderful. Yeah. It's, so, um, so they're... they're we haven't talked about the tropiness, but oh, their the tr- first time, the, their first time is a standard fanfic trope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you even get the, this is, this may hurt. Like you, you get the whole, like, <laughs> oh, I'm just going to be very gingerly with her. And No, no. But I was thinking of the fact that they're having an argument. There's so many, like. I told you, I'm, didn't I tell you? I, te- you I ended up texting me. Jen this and I was like. This is the fanfic classic. The, 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 like, we're fighting, we're, and then all of a sudden, we're passionately. Yeah, it was just fantastic. Oh, so their <laughs> first time, their first time, which is in an inn, by the way. And I almost was like, oh my God, there's even going to be a one bed thing. There's going to be a one bed situation where like, there's That's not true. enough. They were supposed to have two rooms and then I'm so sorry, sir. We're all booked up. There's a convention of insurance salesmen taking honestly, up all of our rooms. I was, it's a one. I was waiting for it. I was waiting for the one bed fic and, and then it didn't end up. If there was no, but like it was because they did go to their separate rooms, but then they're both pacing in their rooms because they're angry and they do the thing that oh that happens when the characters both open the door at the same time and they're right on the opposite sides of the door. Yes, and then we have the we have the and I and I ruined it for Jen and I felt so bad about it because she's like, No spoilers and I was like, Oh god, I'm sorry, I just sent a spoiler. But I said Oh my God, like you have the angry, like impassioned confession of love that you didn't mean to like to have. And then all of a sudden, and then they're just making the out oops, and it was yeah, the first oops, time. The oops declaration of love in the middle of a fight. That's a classic. So that's, that's a, a classic. classic trope of the drama of of the genre. Yeah. Classic trope. And then, <sighs> okay, but let's, well, let's the start. whole setup from the beginning. From the beginning. You have Fake to. D- Burge. Fake dating. No, fake dating. Even no. before that, before even that, before the you fake have dating, virginal but like headstrong young ingenue, <laughs> and then the classic like you know rakish standoffish. I like, shall never I'm marry. I'm never gonna marry. Like blah blah blah. Like okay, fine. All right, fine. Um, if you didn't see this coming from about two minutes into the show. Seriously. We like, are not watching this for plot twists, people. <laughs> like it is definitely predictable in every way, shape, and form. But so okay. So you have the character archetype yeah. tropes mm-hmm. set from the beginning. She's independent, but she's also virginal. And she's also, <laughs> you know, 
Um, she's headstrong and she wants to marry for love and blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. Whatever. Then you have him and he comes on the scene and he's handsome but brutish that he's never going to marry. And friend of friend of the older brother. Friend of the older brother. Also best, a trope. Best friend of the older brother. Best which friend is of the elder. Really great, neat, cute for the two of them. When she's like running from the, oh, the yeah. guy who's trying to get her in the very first. And it, so they bump shoulders and, and she tries to like have him rescue her. And he automatically assumes that she's you know, just trying to get into his pants or his pocketbook. Um, and then they find out when the brother comes up, when Anthony comes over, oh shit, this is your best friend. Oh shit. This is your sister. Um, it was, that's another trope. That's another oh, yeah. trope. Oh yeah. Um, so that was fantastic. Then you have the fake dating. So you fake have dating or fake One... courting. <laughs> And even to fake married at one point. That's like, what I'm saying. Not only do you like, have fake dating, you have fake married. How do you manage that in the same goddamn series? I don't understand it. Fake fake dating and fake married are some of the all-time great fanfic tropes right there. Like the Perfection. friends friends to enemies to lovers. Friends like, to enemies. No, no, no. Enemies. To enemies friends, to friends. Enemies to, to friends. To lovers. Yes. Yeah. That's a sep That's a, I'm like Shonda Rhimes. She just went and poached AO3 completely. She really and did. It was shameless. we thank her. We thank shameless. her because it just made me think, though, Kristen, I was like, will somebody please get a hold of Dasha K and make Blinded by White Light God. into a miniseries like yesterday? Like, think of the miniseries that show that episode. Ugh. OK, moving I on. need it in my eyeballs. That's the yeah. only thing that we really didn't get was amnesia out of these <laughs> two. You know what if I mean? If there had been some amnesia, in that would have covered all the trope bases, I think. Almost all of them. Because there was basically one bed with the inn. Basically. The first time was at an inn, for goodness sakes. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what other tropes I, I could think of off the top of my head as where I'm going through the episodes. You have the first, you know, the that proverbial first dance. You have the first names that I, I described right. earlier where they're calling yes, each other suddenly, by their... Yeah. Well, if this is going to be, like, if we're really going to be, like, buying into this whole idea of fake dating, I should call you Daphne. And you should call me Simon. And I'm like... <gasps> <gasps> and then, then, of course, the, like revelation that you really love the person the minute that they are like okay i'm gonna go date prince friedrich over here and the moment where you're like he's like uh, oh oh you know fine <laughs> you even had like just a really but like jealousy the jealousy, oh, the jealousy moment trope is the jealousy trope big time so good but you even had like literally and figuratively you had simon i'm not even this is this is how much i think shonda rhymes is an x-files fan um she was like simon was literally with his shirt sleeves like rolling them back at one point during the one of the oh, boxing yeah. exhibitions 
And yeah. I, I was just, my mind was just called back to all of those, like that multitude of fanfic scenes where Mulder has been like <laughs> rolling back and like buttoning back his shirt sleeves. Like, I'm just like, yeah, mm-hmm, this is familiar. This is very familiar. <laughs> well, I love the, it. The f- well, and then the obvious, obvious trope of during frustration, male character needs to go take out Punch frustration something. in some kind of physical thing. We've seen Darcy do this with the fencing and the swimming. Yeah, like, and I was like, oh, boxing. Oh, and uh, in our favorite Sense and Sensibility adaptation, when Dan Stevens plays he's, Edward Faros and he's chopping wood. He's chopping wood. <laughs> he's Absolutely. Chopping wood. So this was like, oh, look, Simon's going to go punch his buddy Will for a little while because he's frustrated. Let's also take a moment because in my research of doing this podcast and also the show, Will was actually based on a real character in Regency era Britain called Bill, not, not Will Mondrich, but Bill Richmond, who was a freed slave who became a boxer. That's so cool. I had no idea that was based on a real person. He was great. Based on a real character. He became, he was freed he was a freed slave and he became a bare knuckle boxer in in britain around the same time and he made his fortune becoming a bare knuckle boxer so will mondrich is a nod to that real historical figure and i thought that that was really cool and also i loved will's family like i loved his wife i loved their their children i loved the whole family dynamic and again i felt like okay this friend of simon is going to be the impetus that makes him realize like okay i don't have to have the same family life that i had like i can be a Mm -hmm. father to children in the same way that my friend has been a father to his children Mm -hmm. as opposed to the way that my father was a fucking asshole to me um Mm -hmm. because his father was a fucking asshole like let's that was watching his backstory unfold was really hard for me um his dad was a dick um but the way that lady danbury came in and saved him Mm -hmm. um and became his mother in a way mother figure yeah mm-hmm. his mother figure was really wonderful and the way that he treated her throughout the show was really heartening and i'm really hopeful in the next season that he can realize that he's capable of being more than his father was to him um so that's my hope for that particular character um what what about you? What sticks out in your mind? One of the things that I thought about, so the central conflict towards the latter part of the, and I read something too that, because I don't read a ton of like romancing novels, but I read about what a lot of Regency era romance novels tend to do is that the love story is actually post-marriage because marriage at this time is so much about an economic and a social proposition that you have to establish. And I think you get a hint of that with Marina Thompson's story and her conversation with Lady Featherington, where she's like, how did you live 
22 years, you know, in this marriage without love. And Lady Featherington tells her, you know, you find small things and then you have big things like your children. And and then, you know, she rides off in the carriage with the brother of her love. Um, and I, that's a very typical sort of Regency storytelling me method of like, you had to marry for all sorts of reasons, money to hide secrets to you know all this kind of stuff and then whether or not you love the person or develop love for the person comes actually after the wedding and so that's the structure of a lot of these novels so the the central conflict of the latter part of the of the series is about what i kind of boiled it down to is this tension is is simon is he going to prioritize his own basically desire for revenge and hatred of his father is he going to let that promise that he made is that going to be more significant to him in his life than his love for daphne is that going to be what's going to make the decision and i feel like in that it's a real um it's a real story about what marriage can feel like on the inside of like what need you know are the needs that you have whatever those needs might be and he certainly has a need and a right to that need to have a sense of i am not going i told my father on his deathbed i am not going to have an heir fuck you you know and that's a genuine need that he has inside but he's married now to this woman who he loves and she has needs too and so what's going to give and so to me, that that that's what that conflict is about um, and whether he's going to allow this, you know, the, the genuine needs of his ego to overrule the one, you know, the needs of his wife. So that um, goes, you know, it goes where you want it to and where it has to go for him to have any growth as a character um, in that he does, you know, eventually move past that but he could just as easily not and i think that i think that stories that we're familiar with definitely have characters where they don't grow because they're not able to change and so that that's what's that's what's i think interesting um about that latter part there and then daphne has to have her own journey too of of recognizing like that she has been rather reckless um, in trying to get what she wants and not treating him lovingly and getting there. And we have that very, very uncomfortable scene of her forcing him to impregnate her. Yeah. It's an awkward, awkward, um, rape scene mm -hmm. of sorts. It is definitely non-consensual. So if we listen, if we're going to be consistent and we're going to say, as we did of the latter, you know, x-files episodes that that scully was raped because she was forced to conceive something that she didn't want to conceive this is rape oh of a man i would say you know yeah you know for being consistent say. so reproductive manipulation is rape yeah and it was it was tough to watch and it was tough to watch her i want to say it was tough but like Part of me is like, oh, it was gratifying. It was gratifying to watch her like take control like that. And I was like, well, hold on a second. That's it's not exactly like it, it's definitely non-consensual at this point. Like he has made mm -hmm. it clear he does not want children. 
So how is that any different? In like flip the genders and right. we're not defending that for a second. Right. You know, so, so how is that any yeah. different? It's not. Yeah. It's not. Well, and I, and I'm guess, and I'm very glad that like she then, have you ever, Kristen, in your life seen period blood on a TV show? I don't know that like I have. of that era. I was like, oh, oh my God. There's like this, the scene of her leaving the opera box and going and she's gotten her period and she's you wiping see herself. Yeah. You see blood. I'm like, holy shit, you never see this on shows ever. It was amazing. It was just it was a moment great. where I was like, cool, this is amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't need to see that all the time, but it was just like an indicator that you're watching something very different. And it was, yeah, it was, it was good. It was wonderful. It was, it was. We're, and we're not, we're not forced with a situation where the child that might've resulted from the rape, you know, would have been factoring into the story. They let that not happen so that the reconciliation that comes about between the two of them is not a forced one. It's one that they, they have to come to. So. And we're still not sure exactly, obviously, what happens to the other unintended pregnancy in the show, which is Marina's, mm -hmm. um, which, again, um, she takes control of that pregnancy from the get-go. She doesn't end it. She tries to. Um, she isn't able to get rid of it. Um, mm -hmm. But she does take the tea. I think she makes a tea at some point and she thinks mm -hmm. she's able to get rid of it and she she doesn't. Um, so, but that pregnancy is still intact. And I kind of, obviously I haven't read the novel, so I don't know where, where that storyline goes, but I'm really interested to see where that, that storyline with the brother goes. Um, mm -hmm. If it goes anywhere at all, because for him to show up and be like, Hey, I'm here. Um, do you want me to, you know, be a gentleman and like take you as a wife? Like that, <laughs> that to me is like, that's, it's gallant in a way that, um, I don't know. It's, it's silly and ridiculous, but it's also, it makes me, makes my heart grow resizes in the, in the same way that the Grinches might. Um, <laughs> And I kind of have high hopes for, for where that goes. Um, what about you? How do you feel about that? Well, I think, again, I think that this, this is where we're putting characters that seem to have pretty modern sensibilities, but we're putting them back into structures and systems that provide space for conflict. And so we're at this moment in time in the Regency era where marriage is moving from a primarily economic stability thing passing on of money and heirs amongst the upper class for sure to being something like where Daphne's like well I want a love match and this idea that you would also want a love match um you know starts to become more prevalent and so I feel like that that moment when I can't remember his name George's brother comes Philip. in Philip Philip comes in he's like still very much operating in the older paradigm and in a weird way, it almost is like, and because you know how quickly they would get like meet, like get engaged, 
get married. It was like so quick. It's very marriage almost felt like less of a big deal and much more of a like a given that like that's did you do you make it happen and like love and connection is not necessarily what you're bargaining on here. And that's where, you know, Anthony and Benedict's stories of those relationships become interesting because they're trying to operate in both in some weird way. So, yeah, I'm I'm so like what marriage is and what its purpose is is undergoing a change at this moment in time. And I feel like the Philip and, and Marina, that's like the older paradigm kind of in play. Yeah, I think you're right. But I think that his willingness, his like blind willingness to kind of just like do right by his brother and also by, you know, the the mother of his nephew yeah. is, it's it's honorable in a way that, you know, it's, it seems silly and trite, you know, and especially in this day and age. But um, I found myself like, like, I found my heart just kind of like really breaking for him when he said, like, you know, I'll marry you, you know, I'll marry you. It made, and... You know what it made me think of? It made me think of like somebody who who's like agrees to marry someone for who needs a green card, mm-hmm. like, you know, and and like is going to have to go back to like a war torn country. Or needs asylum. And that's the only way you can get them to stay in the country. People do this nowadays. You know? Like, there's people who marriage functions in the... Okay. You know, and then we have all sorts of, you know, checks on that process. <laughs> to make right. sure that's not getting taken course. advantage of. But people do. You know? And it made me think of that kind of thing. Very similar which situation. Which is a reminder that, like, marriage is a structure with a whole set of, like, privileges that are conveyed to the people who participate in it. And that, that hasn't changed, you know, not at all. It's still like, you can grant your citizenship and your, you know, your monies and all these things like that you can pass in that way. So it's a way to do it. It's very much still a a financial bargain, you know, a financial and familial bargain, especially Mm -hmm. like familial in that way. Like if, if, cause wasn't he the first born, I think, I'm fairly certain that the man that she fell in love with and had a child by was the firstborn of I think so. the family. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that mattered back then. But anyways, um, did we hit on all the tropes? God, we hit on pretty much There's everything. A lot. There's a lot of tropes. There's a lot of sex. I feel like we've said some about that, but. It is very bodice rippery. I did have a moment when in the in their first time when he's unlacing the corset, and we or made me think of our pull dark episode <laughs> when we were talking about like all we really want is to be unlaced out of a corset. All we really want. <laughs> Although I did learn, I did learn through one of my Jane Austen Facebook groups that um, that's actually not very historically accurate in terms of costuming. Like they didn't actually lace up the back at that point. So it's kind of like every time you see that <laughs> in a in a historical fiction um, setting, it's like mm, it's not quite real. But it's not quite that sexy. Mm, not really. Oh well. Um. But it was still satisfying, that's for sure. Yeah. It was odd. I think I I'm not saying I didn't enjoy the sexy times. But when one is like 
used to the slow burn and the slow sort of like gesture kind of romance. It is a little off-putting to suddenly be like they're doing it up against every available wall and he's like, you know, got her on the stairway or in the library. And and I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> there's a degree to which I hate to say this, and this may just be that I have problems. It doesn't, it's not actually as sexy. Am I wrong here? No. Am I messed up? It's not as sexy as Darcy, like walking away from the carriage, flexing his hands because he can't touch her. I mean, I'm probably, I'm probably messed up. You're not, you're not overthinking it. No. Okay. It's, it's. I mean, I got to watch, I mean, Daphne orgasmed on screen like 15 times. I I know she had so many orgasms. Good for her. (laughs) But like, I was like, you just got married. Good job for you. Like, <laughs> Honestly, though, if I was like, if I was participating in coitus <laughs> with the Duke of Hastings, like I would probably orgasm that many times. <laughs> like if I'm being honest, <laughs> he's quite handsome. Mr. I think it's Regé-Jean. Regé-Jean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Regé-Jean Page. Um, yeah. Um, dude, like, dude owes me a new television because it's melted at this it's point. Mel- you, you melted it. He's hot. He is fine as fuck. He's in that category for me that's like so good looking that it's like it's like another species of person. Yes. And so I look at them and I'm like, that's beautiful. It has no relation to like, <laughs> to like me and my embodiment in any sense of the word. It's like it's like watching like a mermaid or something. Like or like, a, it's like a, a merman. It is. It's like do you know those those films that you see of like wild horses just galloping yes. across an open plain yeah. and you're just yes. like, God, that's so beautiful and majestic. That is nothing at all like I am as a human being. Yeah, that's what it feels like. Yes, that's that's a, that's a good analogy. Precisely. So, yeah. So while it's like you know it's hot, it's also like distance. So <laughs> he is stupid hot. He's like brain exploding hot. It is so dumb. <laughs> I told you the Bridgerton boys are are sort of more my cup of tea, probably because attainable, like. The side Anthony, Anthony with his oh god with his sideburns. I I Mm -hmm. happen to really be fond of Benedict. Like I oh yeah, Benedict so handsome. Yeah, for sure. Super handsome dude. Kind of nerdy art boys. Yeah, I mean, hello. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah. So yeah. So while I find the the sex scenes, you know, it's like it's a romance novel. It's fun. It's it's not as hot as like, did you see um, did you see Portrait of a Lady on Fire? No. Oh, 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 my friend, you need to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is lesbian relationship, but it's very restrained as they try to figure out the sort of dynamics between the two of them. It's full of just like, oh, you will love it. Oh, you will love it. It's got this. It's got the like the tension. Those clandestine touches. Yeah, and it does have, I mean, it does have um, a scene or two, but like there's not a, there's still a, 
an artistry to their sort of coming. I just really dig it. You need to see Portrait of a Lady on Fire, everyone. Okay. It will, will wreck it. it will wreck you emotionally, but it's really amazing. So. I love being emotionally wrecked. <laughs> love it. Okay, well, shall I we... think we've covered our bases, everyone. You should enjoy Bridgerton. It's fun. It's it Regency is. era AU fanfic. It is. And it's beautiful. It is, as I described to Jen, it is basically like taking this giant bowl of like really salty, buttery popcorn and like plopping it in front of yourself and just starting to kind of like take little mouthfuls. And all of a sudden, before you know it, um, the entire bowl was gone because... I did that this afternoon, actually. With yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. Um, because even though you know it's terrible for you and even though you know it's not good for you, you're still just going to just continue to just like shovel handfuls into your mouth because it's so salty and buttery and addictive and airy and light. And it's just, it's so wonderful and it feels so good at the time. That's basically exactly what Bridgerton is. And listen, it has been a hell of a year. Fuck yeah, it has been. We deserve this, ladies. We do. We, we deserve it. This year has sucked. Like, give yourself this. Give yourself this pleasure. And you know what? And give yourself the enjoyment of not overanalyzing it, even though that's just what we did. <laughs> we like... just spent an hour and 15 minutes overanalyzing the shit no, out of the show. No, I don't think we did overanalyzing it. I think overanalyzing it would be like getting into all the historical nuance and whatever. It's a tropey, romantic, beautifully designed and beautifully shot, big budget production. It's fantastic fun. With so. really hot first times Regency era sex. Like, let's just get... Yeah, it's good. And we never talked about Lady Whistledon, who was an entire method of setting up the structure of the show. And I think we will just not even talk about her. I don't think we need to. I don't think we need to. I don't think it matters, per se. But it does make... I will say, the way that it's revealed gives you a strong reason to go back and rewatch so that you can put the pieces together. And I haven't done that yet, so... I started. I started to, and it started to unfold fairly quickly once you knew who she was, and it was like, oh, okay, I should have seen this coming. I had some. I had some thoughts that that might be who it was, but there you go. There you go. Okay, dear listeners, <laughs> if there are any of you out there, <laughs> thank you so much for coming back and listening to us. Uh, just talk about what you know everything that has gone on in our lives and also Bridgerton and hopefully within the next couple of weeks months time has no meaning at this point um, maybe we can come back and, and do something else now that we're well if you finish Queen's Gambit we can talk about Queen, Queen's Gambit I would love to because I have thoughts, so, you know. Let's and I it. haven't watched very many things, but I did watch that. And I love, I love Anya and Taylor Joy, so let's just. Let's well, and you look like, you look like her, so. 
I wish it does. Maybe not at this moment, but she probably doesn't look like herself at this moment either. Okay, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will talk to you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in. Good topic. Bye. Bye.